You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. I think it's helpful as we are seeing Jesus walk into room after room after room and engage people in intimate settings to understand how it is Jesus moves into a space like that. If we can do so, perhaps we'll understand what it is that Jesus is doing within the space of our own lives, what it is that Jesus is doing in our own inner beings. How does Jesus change a life? To ask this question is to ask, what is the meaning of spiritual formation and how does it happen? And and sometimes when you ask a question, the place to begin to get an answer is to know what the opposite is, what it isn't, what a really bad answer to the question would be. And so Jesus in our text this morning gives us a contrast. He shows us what spiritual formation isn't and how it doesn't actually happen in our lives. To see that contrast, would you open up your Bible to Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 41. you find that on page 846 of our Pew Bible. Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 41. And if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee invited him to dine with him. So he went in and took his place at the table. The Pharisee was amazed to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Then the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? So give alms for those things that are within, and see everything will be clean for you. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Spirit of Jesus, in this place, we so desperately need to hear you speak the love of Christ into our innermost being. So speak. In Jesus' name, amen. There are, for me, three surprises as Jesus walks into this particular room. First, the Pharisees' amazement. Secondly, Jesus' anger. And thirdly, your inner sanctuary. First, the Pharisees' amazement. It's not a surprise, actually, that this Pharisee would invite Jesus to a meal, nor that Jesus would accept the invitation. It would seem that Jesus and the Pharisee both share a lot in common. It seems to me that they both want the same thing. They both want that life would be the way it is supposed to be. There's a movie called Grand Canyon, and uh, near the beginning of the movie, there's a scene in which Danny Glover's kind of um, elderly African-American gentleman who drives a tow truck, happens upon what is just about to be a horrible crime scene. A middle-aged white man has broken down uh, in a, a, a tough neighborhood, Los Angeles, 
and he has been surrounded by a gang of young African-American men. And Danny Glover tries to defuse the tension by backing his truck right into the front of, of this car and, and just going right to work to jack it up, never mind uh, the racial tension and the violence that's brewing all around him. And this gang is disappointed. Here's one of our own. And the leader of the gang starts to approach Danny and tries to get his attention. You're, you're, you're interfering here. And Danny Glover very wisely and graciously looks this young gang member in the face, sees his pistol in his belt. And he says to him, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to do my job without asking you if I can. That dude, meaning the white guy, is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than the way it is. Maybe you have that sense sometimes, too, when you open the newspaper or when you read the pathology report or when you look at the email that just came in. Everything is not supposed to be this way. Jesus and the Pharisee both recognize that fact, and they both have dedicated themselves uh, to do something about it. In this sense, Jesus and Pharisee are both activists in the world. Both of them have an imagination for the way that life is really supposed to be, and they are subverting the status quo. They're subversives. They have energy to live out of that imagination to resist the way things appear to be in light of the way they should. They both have a vision for people who would live as they're supposed to live. This is what we would call spiritual formation, if people would become just such people. So I think that Jesus and the Pharisee are both interested in spiritual formation. And the Pharisee knows this about Jesus. We don't know how detailed his information is about Jesus. He must have heard some of his teaching that Jesus speaks of a way of life that's so radically different than the, than the experience most of us have. But more than just the way Jesus teaches, there are his miracles. The Pharisee surely must have heard rumors of this man, Jesus, who walks to the blind and gives them sight simply by speaking his word to them. He approaches the leper and touches and makes them whole. He, he disarms the animosity of, of hostile men surrounding a lonely woman. Now, Jesus must be one who is committed to living radically different in a world that does not understand him. Helmut Tielica, the theologian, uh, takes issue with the way that you and I commonly think of miracles. We tend to think of miracles as a momentary suspension of the natural order, kind of an aberration, something that breaks in. Theolica says, you know, why, why should that be the case? Maybe we just see miracles that way because you and I have banished God from this world. If we hadn't done so, perhaps what we see in a miracle would be the norm. Not anything unusual. And perhaps when we see a miracle, what we're really seeing is reality. 
breaking into what otherwise is illusion. So Jesus has shown what reality really looks like. And the Pharisee must know that. So he's interested in Jesus. Jesus must know also that the Pharisee has this interest. For Jesus would know what a Pharisee is in the first century in Palestine, Judaism. A Pharisee was a person who really wanted life to be the way it was supposed to be. And the Pharisees were kind of a populist movement that was both political and religious. It was a grassroots movement that just kind of took by itself without leadership and it penetrated every segment of society. So we think of Pharisees as leaders. Some of them are leaders, but many of them are not. They're just regular people wherever they happen to be, but they share a common conviction. And that is under Roman occupation, life isn't what it should be. The temple, for example, has been defiled and its institutional operation has been compromised. So that most sacred of places, which is meant by God to give witness to his presence in the world and everything that's right about this creation as God intended to make it, has lost its significance. And so the Pharisees had another plan. They had a different idea of how they could seek this restoration of of the supernatural order, if, if you will. And they did so by withdrawing from the corruptions of society. The name Pharisee was probably given to them by their opponents. It means separatists. They withdrew. They withdrew so that they could be closer to God, more in God's presence. And if the, if the temple were to be defiled, then while they'll just take the legislation that was to govern the temple and they will apply it in their own homes. And that's what a Pharisee did. That's why they're so exercised so often about the ways in which Jesus moves toward the table, because the table for them is the epicenter of spirituality. Food mattered profoundly. God had given ancient Israel a prescription for the Levites, the sons of Aaron, the priests, to uh, represent ritual purity in the presence of God and minister in the temple. And although the Pharisees were not priests necessarily or Levites, sons of Aaron, they applied all of that legislation. They took the initiative to say, well, we'll just, we'll just take these rules upon ourselves and we'll make our homes, our table, to be a sacred sanctuary. A kind of a plan B temple. Jesus would know all about this. And so Jesus would understand that he and the Pharisee are both, in many ways, after the same thing. But there is a difference. And the difference between the two has to do with the how. It has to do with the way in which these two men understand spiritual formation and the renewal of society to happen. Dramatically different. And this is what amazes the Pharisee. In verse 38, we see uh, the amazement. The Pharisee, we read, was amazed. Now, this word amazed is a word universally in the Gospel of Luke that is the response of people to the miraculous. That's what it's, it's only and always used when God has just broken into an otherwise really mundane situation. People are amazed, like the angels who show up at the birth of Jesus. Everyone was amazed. The huge catch of fish that just suddenly came to the disciples. Everyone was amazed. When a paralytic stands up to walk, everyone is amazed. And so if you just read 38, you want to go back to verse 37 and go, well, what was the miracle that Jesus just did? 
And the miracle that just happened is so simple that after this worship service, you can go up to Larson Hall and perform the exact same miracle. It's that Jesus sat down to eat without washing his hands. That simple action was to the Pharisees so dramatically radical that he was amazed. And he's no way of understanding that except to think that perhaps there's something supernatural going on. It's just so foreign. Because if he's like me, then he would want to be holy and pure in the same way that I want to be holy and pure. I've I got to believe that's Jesus' goal like it's mine. But how could you ever get to that goal if you were to neglect our only hope for salvation, which is to be as scrupulous about our spirituality as we possibly can? And here, Jesus just so casually and cavalierly walks right in, walks right past the laver, and just goes, let's eat, and sits down at the table. This is astonishing. Jesus has violated the rules of the Pharisee. There's no law to wash your hand. But it was the Pharisee's strategy for his own purification and that of his home and that of society that Jesus flagrantly violates. Two, Jesus' anger. Jesus is aware of, of this difference, the difference of how between himself and the Pharisee. I think Jesus intentionally comes and sits down just this way. I think he wants to provoke the amazement of the Pharisee as he pulls alongside the table. But the difference does not amaze Jesus, nor does it amuse Jesus. It actually angers Jesus. And we have in Jesus kind of a belch of what I would call spiritual indignation rising up inside of him. Six woes, he pronounces, dramatically on this room and all who are there. Now, I want to say uh, first, before we get into the cause of Jesus' anger... Just a word about Jesus and anger. It's surprising to us to see Jesus angry, as we uh, so oftentimes associate spirituality with a kind of an inner peace, a tranquility. And so we like the story of Mary and Martha, where he just sits and invites us just to sit, and all as pacific as can be, so centered in that moment. We, we think that Jesus must always be that way. And so when we see him angry, it troubles us. We have no place in our Hallmark cards for these words that come next in the Gospel of Luke. And we just wonder, what is going on? Now, Jesus, on the other hand, has no need to hide his anger. It just comes right out. He doesn't hide it. In fact, he, he, in verse 42, he begins a series of three woes, which we'll look at in a moment. And as, as though just to catch his breath, he pauses briefly. And, and one of the people who's there is a lawyer which is a different kind of lawyer than when we think of a lawyer. A lawyer would be a religious function, somebody who's a scribe, actually. In Luke, the lawyer and scribe are interchangeable, someone who copies the law and, and it, um, gives advice on the basis of that law. A lawyer says, in verse 45, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. I love that. And Jesus turns right around and says, Woe also to you lawyers! You know? <laughs> it's like, uh, he's saying, Woe to you Pharisees! Woe to you Pharisees! Woe to you Pharisees! And then, the lawyer says, you know, I don't feel like this conversation is so safe. It seems to even implicate me. And he says, woe to you too. You know? he, didn't, he, didn't, he doesn't mince his words. He doesn't hide his feelings. Jesus is pretty passionate in this moment. And we do well to pay attention. I don't think Jesus is angry at the Pharisee. 
And it's important for us to understand this because a lot of us have this idea that maybe God is angry at us. Uh, maybe God, we have done something so wrong that God is, is, is furious at us or, or at least stewing towards us. But I don't think Jesus is angry at the Pharisee himself. I think he's angry at the situation the Pharisee is in. And that's an important distinction. We find in John eleven thirty eight, Jesus, again, is furious. The language is very strong. He's furious because Lazarus has died. He's not furious with Lazarus. He's furious at the situation Lazarus is in. So it has come to this. This is how far from the way... Things are supposed to be as they have come. Jesus says, woe, six times, woe to you. That word woe really doesn't have a precise meaning. It's actually just kind of, it's an exclamation. It sort of sounds, it's like, wow. It just is what, what it sounds like. One dictionary says, it's a Greek dictionary, it's the exclamation of pain or pity for the misfortune that awaits someone in a certain condition. So as I've been reading these woes this week, I, I translate woe this way. This won't end well. <laughs> you know, that's my own rendering. Jesus looks at the situation, he's going, oh, this is not going to end well for you. This is not going to end well. See, he's concerned about it. He's upset about it. He's even angry about it. Jesus takes the posture of an Old Testament prophet like Jeremiah, who says, Woe to you, Jerusalem! You have lost your purity. It is a covenant lawsuit is being filed against Israel by the prophet saying, God is your God. And, and he calls people back to faithfulness to that God. And yet they have wandered away. And so Jesus identifies the way in which this crowd has wandered away. He's not fighting for morality. Jesus is not fighting for principle. Jesus is fighting for people. It's the only reason Jesus ever fights. He fights in this moment the way he fights throughout his whole earthly life for the souls of men and women for their redemption and freedom, for the expression and realization of God's love in their life. That is why Jesus is angry. Now, the cause of the anger. In verse 39, it's clear that Jesus has read the amazement of the Pharisee, and it is this to which Jesus responds. He says, now, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, okay, but inside... You are full of greed and wickedness. This is a rather tough diagnosis, and the physician Luke would recognize the importance of giving the patient the correct diagnosis if you were to be a good physician, and Jesus identifies it right there. He looks from the Pharisee's face to the table and sees the dishes. He says, it's like those dishes. You who are so scrupulous in your piety, who have a kind of an anxious God, that requires you to do everything just so. And so you, 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 you clean the outside of the cup with fastidious care, have somehow neglected the most important part, the inside. And there are trays and platters and cups and dishes, and perhaps there's food scattered about. And, 
It's not unlike what you and I will experience later on today, you know, as kind of community dipping and you could, there's the, the guacamole and there's the refried beans and, you know, you dip in there and what if you just left those plates there the next day, clean the outside of them and had breakfast out of the same dishes? Jesus says, you know, when you live this way, if this is going to be your how, things are going to get worse, not better. You're full of stuff because greed is like plunder. You're going out and you're grabbing stuff from other people. Wickedness is just a general word for evil. It's not good stuff and it's festering. You've got a bunch of bacteria if you're just going to clean the outside, the superficial, the part that you can reach. But there's a whole other part. There's a whole other part of your being to which God and God alone has access. And it is this that must be cleaned. In order for you to experience life the way it is meant to be experienced. And so he gives these six woes. And I'd like to race through them with you so that you can understand them. It's important. We won't do them justice. But let's look at the first one in verse 42. Jesus says, But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and herbs of all kinds and neglect justice and the love of God. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. I'm going to give you my translation, my rendering or reinterpretation of these six woes for us. I think what he's saying, you know, you tithe the little things. We make little things into big things. That's what I think he's saying. Why? Because we have control over the little things. We don't have control over the big things. And we feel like we can manage uh, and we need to manage. And so if your approach to spiritual formation is to manage life yourself, to clean as much as you can reach with your own industry, then you're going to end up making little things into big things. And big things into little things. Uh, the second woe is this, verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love to have the seat of honor in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. I call this, well, uh, this, we crave the affirmation of others. Why? Because if you set the bar for yourself so high in life, you will never be able to attain it. And as you fall short again and again, even of your own aspirations, you will begin to feel very insecure. And you will constantly need people around you who can reaffirm you and tell you it's okay. They're living, these Pharisees, out of a radical insecurity. The next woe, 45, uh, 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without realizing it. Sometimes for convenience, um, a bunch of bones would be dug into a shallow hole and poorly marked. And an Israelite could walk by and to touch, uh, come into physical contact with dead. God had taught God's people that was going to be ritually defiling because I'm a God of life. I'm not a God of death. And when you come into contact with that, you're not having an experience of me, actually. And I want you to have an experience of me. And so what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you know, um, this, this festering alienation within your soul comes out in ways. You, you hide it, you, you bury it, and yet it comes out in your relationships with other people. So I would word it this way. We drain life out of people around us. Our sense of failure leads to a sense of shame and an experience of loss. And we will play that out in our relationships. So for the Pharisee, these three woes, we make little things into big things. We crave the affirmation of others and we drain life out of people around us. Then the lawyer says, hey, you're going to insult me, too. And Jesus turns right around. He says, OK, well, woe to you, lawyers. And he's got three more. 
Verse 46, woe also to you lawyers. For you load people. This is like cargo on a ship. You load people with burdens hard to bear. And you yourselves do not lift a finger to ease them. And here's the woe. We burden people with unrealistic demands. Why? Well, because they're neurotic about their own perfectionism. I I tell you this uh, to you as one who struggles with perfectionism. I have inflicted that disease on my family. Those of you who are perfectionists have a tendency to include the people around you within the circle of your own identity. And when you're not perfect, that's one thing, but you tend to be upset when other people that that you identify with aren't perfect either. You begin to burden them with burdens that they cannot fulfill and should not have to fulfill. And then uh, Jesus continues in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your ancestors killed. So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that this generation may be charged with the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world, from the blood of Abel, the first martyr in the Bible, to the blood of Zechariah, the last martyr in the Hebrew uh, canon, the prophet who was, who was slain in the sanctuary, in the temple itself, uh, who per- perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be charged against this generation. Here's the woe in my language. We suppress the truth about ourselves. Why? We can't afford it to get out. We know we are vulnerable. We know we do not measure up. And if you know that about me, then you're too much of a risk to have around. So I've got to distance you from me. God says, I have sent prophets to call my people back to myself. And you guys are only interested in decorating their tombs. And for that reason, you're complicit. You bury prophets, not listen to them. Finally, woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourself, and you hinder those who were entering. The key of knowledge is that the the law, the Torah, the scriptures are all about relationship with God. So I say this, we lock the way to God. We lock the way to God because when we try to maintain our own uh, reformation, we try to work for our own purity, then we have reduced the scripture to a list of rules. And our learning has become nothing more than cognitive information, and we have lost track of the one it calls us into relationship with. We've locked the way to God. These uh, six woes. We make little things into big things. We crave the affirmation of others. We burden people with unrealistic demands. We suppress the truth about ourselves. And we lock the way to God. And Jesus says, this will not help you. He gets angry. It's not the way to spiritual formation. It's the way to spiritual deformation. But Jesus does not leave the room, and this Pharisee in particular, in a state of anxiety. We see him giving witness to a greater hope and his own way of doing spiritual formation. In in verse 41, uh, in fact, 40, Jesus says, Did not the one who made the outside of you make the inside also? Does he not intimately know us, he who knit us together in our mother's womb? Is he not ever present to you 
in the innermost being of your soul. So give alms for those, give for alms those things that are within and see everything will be clean for you. He's using this language figuratively. Alms were oftentimes given at the sanctuary. If you could give true worship from your innermost being, then you would show yourselves to be inwardly pure. And that inner purity would issue forth from you in a way that truly blesses the world. As alms bless those who are poor, so the poor and disenfranchised will know that God is active deep within you, transforming you, showing forth the way life ought to be in your spirit. So Jesus calls attention here, I think it's interesting, to another sanctuary. Not the one that the Pharisee has fabricated for himself and his family, the one that God gives us, a greater sanctuary. And he doesn't answer the question of how so much as the question of who. He presents to the Pharisee himself, Jesus, sitting at his table inside of his home, calling attention to the sanctuary. The question first is, who made you? Well, the one who is enthroned above. The psalmist says, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. There's a cosmic sanctuary. And on the throne of that space, there is one whom Jesus teaches his disciples to say, Our Father. Not my Father. Our Father. You have a heavenly Father who sits enthroned in a heavenly sanctuary. One who calls you my daughter, my son. Spiritual formation begins with a recognition of his love for you. And then Jesus leads us to the next question, who redeemed you? Because there is another temple in which Jesus is depicted in the scriptures as sitting at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 10, 11 and following says, Every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. He's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. That's himself. He sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. He is the Son of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says we need to take note when Jesus sits down in the eternal sanctuary. In the Israelite sanctuary, there were no chairs. There was no place to sit because day after day, year after year, the priest had to remain standing to continue to offer sacrifices again and again. But Jesus never rested in his earthly ministry until he journeyed to the cross and made purification for sins with his very blood and then ascends into heaven and sits at the right hand of Father. For Jesus to sit is significant. In the book of Revelation, he's not portrayed for us as ever sitting, as ever doing anything but sitting. But there he sits. He sits to suggest the forgiveness of our sin has been forgiven. It is finished. Jesus wouldn't sit if it weren't finished. He sits to suggest that we enjoy with him and in him the affirmation of God. There we sit as a son or a daughter in Jesus, hearing the words of our Heavenly Father saying, Well done. In, in you I am well pleased. 
And then as well, to sit at the right hand of the Father is to sit in the place of power. To the extent that you and I are bound through baptism to Jesus Christ, we sit at the right hand of the Father, a place of great power. For it is from that place, the relationship between the Son and the Father, that the Spirit of Jesus is poured out upon his followers. And it is the Spirit of Jesus who dwells in another temple. And that is within you and within me. The temple that is the innermost being of our lives. The Apostle Paul is saying, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells, lives in you? And it is this same Spirit who does so in order to bring forth all of the qualities all of the power, all of the implications of the presence of Jesus Christ in your life and in mine. The question of spiritual formation is not how, it's who. It's to be able to see the Father, the Son, and the Spirit having accomplished our complete purification from our sin on the cross and having sent forth the Holy Spirit who now gives us an experience of our newness of life. Day by day, we can speak to Him. He will speak to us in our innermost being. Bob Munger gives us a beautiful picture of that in his book, My Heart, Christ's Home. You may remember Bob Munger is one of our uh, beloved pastors here at University Presbyterian Church. And in this book, it's somewhat of an allegory based on the scripture, the prayer of Paul in uh, Ephesians chapter 3 when he says, I, I, I pray that uh, you may be renewed in your innermost being, that Jesus may be at home in your heart through his spirit, that you may be rooted and grounded in his love. And uh, in this allegory, the main character, a man takes Jesus through his house, the various rooms of his life, and watches Jesus begin to bring renewal to each area one by one. But there's one area, a closet at the top of the second floor stairway that is locked, it's closed, it's got his hidden, deepest, darkest, most painful parts of who he is. And Jesus says one day, I'd like to go into that closet. And the man resisted. I had given him access to the study, he says, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the rec room, the bedroom, the family room, the kitchen. And now he was asking me about a little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he responded, reading my thoughts, if you think that I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with this smell, you are mistaken. I will take my bed out on the back porch or somewhere else. I'm certainly not going to stay around that. And I saw him start down the stairs. When you've come to know and love Jesus Christ, one of the worst things that can happen is to sense him withdrawing his face and fellowship. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said sadly. But you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said. I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to handle that closet, and I will. So, with trembling fingers, I passed the key over to him. He took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, took out the putrefying stuff that was rotting there, and threw it all away. Then he cleansed the closet painted it and fixed it up all in a moment's time. Immediately a fresh, fragrant breeze swept through the house. The whole atmosphere changed. 
What release and victory to have that dead thing out of my life. No matter what sin or what pain there might be in my past, Jesus is ready to forgive, to heal, and to make me whole. He's ready to do the same for us as well. This is his how. His Holy Spirit. I will close with uh, six woes of spiritual formation. I figure if Jesus could have his woes, I can have my wows. Six wows of spiritual formation. These are they. First of all, let the Spirit of Jesus fill you. He is within you to will and to work for God's good purposes. Let the Spirit of Jesus fill you. Two, find your affirmation in the Father's for the Son. Do you hear the Father saying to Jesus, Well done, good and faithful servant. With you I am well pleased. If you can hear in that his affirmation of you as his daughter or as his son, it will be all the affirmation that you need. Three, forgive the way that you have been forgiven. Just as you have an experience of Jesus' radical grace and renewal in your life and total forgiveness, then let's share that forgiveness with the people around us. Let's live in it. Four, read the scriptures to know Jesus better. Not to look for new information, but to deepen our living relation with Jesus Christ. To know him better. Five, to confess your sins to people who love you. Yes, confess your sins to Jesus, but confess your sins to people because when we confess our sin, we so desperately need someone to wrap their arms around us with the grace of Jesus to assure us it has all been forgiven, friend. Six, point others towards Jesus. Witness to Jesus' presence in their life as well. Let the Spirit of Jesus fill you. Find your affirmation in the Father's for the Son. Forgive the way you have been forgiven. Read the scriptures to know Jesus better. Confess your sins to people who love you and point others towards Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, we confess when we look into the darkness of our own hearts that we have no resource for our own transformation. There's just nothing helpful that we can do. But we also confess, because of your promise and in faith, that when we look into our inner sanctuary, there we meet you, alive and well and eager to renew us. So we give you the key. We give you permission this morning to free us, to begin that process. Sometimes a process we acknowledge we are going to resist Yet we invite you to overcome our resistance with your love and grace and to bring transformation for your sake and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.